Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 52, Restored. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Edward Fudge. He's the author of a book we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks called The Fire That Consumes, which I think will be a fascinating discussion, but one which might rub some of you a little raw. Um, I don't know. We'll have to see about that. Uh, But that's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the Restoration Movement and the Churches of Christ, uh, since my anonymous guest from a few weeks ago uh, asked me to take those episodes down. Um, All of that material we're going to go over, plus much more. So uh, I hope that you'll enjoy the interview. I know I certainly did. Um, Now, I'm trying to think if there was any monologue uh, that I wanted to give. I've been racking my brain to try and think if there's anything new to share. But it has only been a day and a half, so I guess there's really not that much, except to say that... um, Two things. One, thank you for your prayers and for your condolences um, after I shared the the news, um, my wife's and my news with you last episode. Um, God is being good to us and he's keeping us at peace and um, comforting us in the midst of our grief. Um, So, uh, you know, continue to pray for us, but things are going well so far. The other thing is, uh, and I posted this on Facebook yesterday after I posted the links to my latest episodes. Um, Right now, R.C. Sproul and his podcast is is doing a series on eschatology. Um, As you might know if you've listened to some of my previous episodes, uh, Dr. Sproul is a uh, preterist like I am. Um, Some of you might call that position partial preterism. I hate that for reasons I've talked about already. But anyway, if you want to hear somebody that's far more intelligent and far more wise and educated and uh, uh, perhaps even more uh, winsome, you know, than I am, somebody more respected, somebody well-known, all those kinds of things, Uh, if you want to hear somebody like that um, articulate why it is that we preterists hold the position that we do, um, I would encourage you to go to ligonier.org, that's L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R.org, click on the Renewing Your Mind radio link, wherever that is. And listen right there online or subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe for free. Um, Check those episodes out. I think that you'll at least find them challenging. Maybe not. I think you will. But anyway, that's not actually the ministry that I want to promote today. The next promo in my rotation is for my friend Phil Nason's show, What Color is the Sky in Their World? Hi, this is Phil Nason's from the blog and the podcast, What Color is the Sky in Their World? Formerly known as the Theology Today blog and podcast. It's a blog and podcast dealing with and examining issues that affect each and every one of us from a Christian perspective. You can find us at phillyflash.wordpress.com or at theologytoday.podbean.com. Thanks a lot. Now, Phil hasn't been doing many episodes lately. I'm sure he's busy, um, but still, I'm, I'm sure he's not finished. And I think that you'll enjoy some of the past shows that he's done, and I'm sure that there'll be episodes in the future that you'll enjoy as well. Um, one correction I do need to make, though, since he recorded that promo for me, he's since changed his uh, the location of his uh, podcast. It's no longer theologytoday.podbean.com. Now it's whatcolor.wordpress.com. 
And I'll include that link in the show notes so that you can check it out. But Phil Nasons is a great guy, and um, he's uh, been a big encouragement for me in my attempt to have a, uh, a podcast. So check him out. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and we'll move into the interview. But just one thing, one last thing I want to say. Um, we weren't able to get Skype working uh, on his end, and so I, I had to use Skype to call his cell phone. And so there may be, it may be at times a little bit difficult to hear, but overall I think it went pretty well. And when we come back in two weeks to do the interview on the fire that consumes, you'll have those technical issues worked out. So in any case, let's move into the interview. You have restored me from a fever and broken soul. You have restored me, oh yeah. You have restored me from a fever and broken soul. You have restored me, oh yeah. Today I'm joined by Dr. Edward Fudge, practicing attorney, scholar, theologian, and author of several online and published books, including perhaps most notably The Fire That Consumes, a book and topic that we'll be talking about here in a couple of weeks. But today Dr. Fudge joins me to discuss a different topic, the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement and the Churches of Christ which have emerged from it. Dr. Fudge, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I look forward to our conversation. Now, you just celebrated a birthday about a week ago, is that right? You're very observant. I did some research. Yes, sir. <laughs> turned, turned 67. Well, happy birthday. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, you've got a long and fascinating biography, which my readers can check out at your website. And toward the end of the interview, I'm going to ask you for that. But what I'm particularly interested in today is your involvement in the movements that we're going to be talking about today. In an email to me, you said that you were a lifelong constituent in the movement and that you're an early and vocal voice in urging its gospel renewal. Can you tell us about that, what your history and involvement with the movement is? Well, my roots in the restoration movement, as it's called, or sometimes called the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement, go back to a number of generations on both sides of the family. On my father's side, uh, he grew up in North Alabama, uh, was descendant of members of the Restoration Movement, and, and a particular brand that traced its origins back to uh, to Stone uh, as opposed to Campbell. And uh, on, my, on my mother's side, her parents were 60-year missionaries, lifelong missionaries in Africa, southern part of Africa. She grew up there and came to America to go to college. Uh, her, her, her grandparents on her father's side had gone across the United States in a covered wagon to Kansas, and they were members of the Restoration Movement. So it goes back uh, somewhere near the time of its origins. Well, what about you personally? Um, in what ways have you been an early and vocal voice in urging the gospel renewal that you mentioned in the email? Uh, my particular uh, connection is through the Churches of Christ, which uh, my father was a minister in. The, ch the Churches of Christ are really a non-denominational group from an organizational standpoint, meaning that there's no structure or anything larger than the local church. It's really a fellowship of uh, autonomous churches, so they such the theory. And, uh, and so there, there's no formal denominational ordination, but uh, churches just call their own preachers and so forth. Well, my dad was a preacher uh, every Sunday, and he had a Christian publishing business, which he earned a living at during the week. As I've already said, my mother's father was a missionary with the same people in Africa for 60 years preaching the gospel. And I grew up uh, from, from birth in that environment. Uh, I was expected from the time I was about two years old that I would be a preacher. And uh, 
And when I was 16, I started preaching every Sunday in churches around and, uh, and did that for the next 50 years off and on until the present day, although I haven't had a regular church and I'm preaching you know, all the time uh, since 1982 when we moved to Houston. I've served as an elder in the church I'm in in Houston uh, for 19 years off and on several different terms. And uh, as far as, uh, as trying to help pioneer the way for gospel renewal, I would say that goes back to the early 70s, uh, at least maybe even the 60s, uh, particularly after 1973, thereabouts, when I published a little booklet called The Grace of God, which uh, called on our people to put their trust wholly in Jesus Christ and his doing and dying for us and not in anything that we have put together by our own performance. Mm. That's interesting. Well, I'm sure we're going to get to some more of that a little bit later. Now, I contacted you after I interviewed an anonymous guest that you're familiar with on the same topic. Uh, before my guest asked me to take that interview down, you had had a chance to listen at least to the second part. For those who also listened to it before I removed it, as someone who is so well acquainted with this movement, would you say that my guest had, that what my guest had to say was generally accurate? And where is it that you hope to provide some clarity? Well, he, he was, uh, everything he said, was uh was true of some people and uh and my concern was only that that he was uh that he and you together in your conversation unintentionally were perhaps leaving an impression that the, the worst case scenario was more broadly applicable than I think it really is mm. but your guest was a good man and a good friend of mine, and I'm not intending to criticize him other than to say that I think his information based on his own experience was more limited that he perhaps even understood. I understand, and I'm, I'm sure he'll appreciate you saying that he was uh, correct, at least as far as what he said about this specific group. Now, at your website, you link to the church that you currently serve at, and I'll admit that with my limited experience being what it is, I was a little surprised to see a Church of Christ that seems so different from the particular branch of the movement that we discussed earlier. Uh, now, perhaps that illustrates the importance of having you on to highlight the differences between these groups. Can you tell us briefly about your church and how it probably stands apart from Churches of Christ that many of my listeners might be familiar with, that they would consider extreme and unbiblical? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, f- first of all, I want to be, be clear that in everything I say, I'm, I'm stating what I perceive to be the facts. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stating what I do believe myself and the people that I'm best acquainted with stand for. And I, and I think it's, it's, we need to be very careful, and it's in fact dangerous to overgeneralize about any group of people mm. uh, and, and, to, and to remember also that we all finally are judged one by one uh, by the one who sees our heart, and we can't really go around dismissing whole groups of people with a terminology or, or a label. So I want to be clear and careful about those things. But as far as the, 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 the congregation that I'm a part of, it's called Bering Drive, B-E-R-I-N-G, like the Bering Straits up near Alaska, uh, the Bering Drive Church of Christ in Houston, Texas. And I've been a member here for 29 years now, and an elder often on, as I said, for 19, adult Sunday school teacher, fill-in preacher, and uh, so forth. It's not a large church. We have fewer than 200 people. Uh, it's a church that has, since its beginning, been different from uh, the churches across in some ways. Uh, it was a leader, I think you might say, among churches of Christ in, in teaching salvation by grace through faith. Uh, this would be of an Arminian variety of understanding as opposed to 
straight Calvinist, and uh, it was also a leader from the early years in the, in the pioneering the way for the sisters in the church to be more active and vocal and visible in the whole, in what they do in, in exercising their gifts alongside the men. I could give you some specific differences if you're interested in that. That's how this actually plays out in the way it looks on a weekly basis. Yeah, sure. Uh, give us just a couple of those. Well, one example would be that uh, we we have always, through the years, engaged in particular Christian service projects and, and good works with people in other denominations, partnering with them. Uh, some of the ministries that are pioneered by our own church uh, have a great deal of interdenominational ecumenical support from other Christians. We've always We've always received... Uh, people from other believer baptism churches as full members up on their coming and saying they wish to be in, in the way any Baptist church might uh, without insisting that they be baptized again in terms of any denominational affiliation. We believe that baptism is, is something Jesus gave, not something the church made up, and it isn't really a matter of identifying with a denomination or a congregation but of uh, expressing one's faith and solidarity in Christ and being publicly identified as a member of his body. We also have, uh, in more recent years, actually expanded the practice of receiving people, and we now operate on the basis that we teach and practice believer immersion, but we uh, receive people as members who come with other backgrounds who, who believe in their heart that, they have been baptized, and we think it's not our place to second guess. Hmm. Yeah, see, already it sounds quite a bit different than some of the churches that I'm familiar with, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, but as it is, let's let's dive in. And as I mentioned, I want to first talk about the restoration restoration movement as a whole before we talk about the Churches of Christ. And since I had to take down the previous interview, if you don't mind, I'd like to go over some of that same material. And I want sure. to... And I, well, and I want to start by going back further than what many might think of when they think about this movement, all the way back to the Reformation. What do you think are sort of the successes and failures of the Reformation, and how do you think it sort of set the stage for the Restoration Movement, which could, would come later? Well, the, the, the uh, Reformation, if we include the whole big picture of Calvin, Luther, uh, Erasmus, and his humanistic aspect and contribution, and, and the Anabaptists, Wingley, and others, uh, was, was of course the reform movement, and, uh, and therefore most people think of that as being the meaning of Reformation. As you know, of course, the word Reformation from the Latin word uh, for that it really means a proclamation of what they were affirming rather than their uh, negative reforming. But uh, the Reformation was needful in the time when the, when the Western Catholic Church was very corrupt, and uh, of course the Catholic Church followed that with the Counter Reformation in which they didn't go as far as we think they should, but they did try to clean up some things themselves. Uh, I think the Reformation, from a Protestant standpoint, was uh, was very uh, needful and appropriate and successful in emphasizing justification by grace through faith as the primary doctrine of the Church and recovering that from from its uh, misuse and, and, uh, and the neglect for the past thousand years. Uh, I think it's important that we understand that justification by grace through faith does not mean that uh, what Jesus has done set us right with God in every respect 
except one and one thing is lacking to make that happen, which is for us to believe. And when we believe and accept Christ, that God then says, well, now what you've done added to what Jesus did makes you say right with me. That's not going on at all, what they were saying, of course. Uh, but that's the way some Protestants seem to think of it today. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the Restoration Movement that I'm a part of, uh, by heritage, uh, frequently identified itself in the earliest years as this current Reformation. And in fact, Alexander Campbell, who was one of the leaders, did not even use the term Restoration hardly at all, if ever, but regularly referred to his work as this current Reformation. And he saw himself as carrying forward the work that the Reformers have begun. These days, by the way, and I'll, I'll stop after this, unless you want to follow up with something else on the same point. These days, it's, it's not uncommon. And next month, if we uh, go forward with our uh, discussion about the fire that consumes, and come up again then in spades. But, uh, but many scholars and theologians across the board today are saying that the Reformers never did get to the great subject of eschatology at last things, and that's an area that needs to be thoroughly explored biblically, uh, which has never received that kind of attention until the recent times. Hmm. Well, yeah, and one of the things that, that uh, the reason why I asked this question about the Reformation and why I asked it of our, of, uh, our mutual friend is that, um, you know, one of the things I think the Churches of Christ pride themselves on, and rightfully so, although we'll get to that a little later perhaps, is, is being, uh, basing their beliefs solely on the Bible. You know, the, 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 one of the biggest things about the Reformation seemed to be sola scriptura, which I take very seriously. Um, and whereas I think some people might take that to an uh, unjustified extreme, nevertheless, the fact that the Reformers emphasized that seemed to sort of set the stage for the Restoration Movement that would follow it. Does that sound reasonable? Yes, they, they definitely uh, picked up on a part of it and said that was a very good thing, which, of course, I agree with as well. Uh, I also think it's important to say that these days uh, it's not uncommon to find many evangelical Protestants even who, who profess great uh, allegiance to a high view of Scripture, who argue vehemently that uh, that the Scripture is our ultimate authority and all of that, but who in fact turn around and, uh, and behave as though it isn't when they get right down to it and sometimes say, well, what the Church has always said uh, is more important than that and, uh, and so forth. Yeah, and I think that's something we'll probably talk about uh, when we talk about the fire that consumes. Um, but from what I understand, about a hundred years or so after the Reformation, the Puritans settled in New England and would further serve as an influence on the Restoration Movement. Uh, and then still another hundred years later came the first so-called Great Awakening, which brought with it the Separate Baptists. H- how do you think that these early groups, the Puritans and the Separate Baptists, further prepared the foundation for the Restoration Movement? I think that each, each of these groups and others that we may be unaware of contributed in the sense that uh, the Christian world as a whole had people scattered throughout it who were who were not uh, content with the progress that had been made to date and were continuing to press forward with the conviction that uh, the Reformation needed to be more thoroughly implemented. And so these groups were examples of people who were trying to do that very thing. And in that sense, uh, they laid this, this set the stage and laid the foundation in part for the restoration movement of Stone and Campbell, who that came along. The guest that I had on, our mutual friend, he, he, he mentioned something about uh, a primitive church or primitive Christianity. Can you elaborate on that at all? Are you familiar with that phrase? Yes. Uh, 
that was one of those in the Campbell's phrases, the, the primitive church. Uh, what he meant by that was the early church as reflected in the New Testament, the first century church. And it, it, most people don't know this, including most people who are in the, in the restoration movement itself, uh, the churches of Christ, uh, part of it, which I'm from. I don't even know this for the most part, but Alexander Campbell had a very interesting uh, agenda which led him to his re- re- restoration movement. He did not start out to restore the church as an, as an item within itself. He was post-millennial, which most people in those days were in America. Uh, he believed that Jesus would not come until the end of the millennium. Uh, but his, he, he, he desired earnestly for Jesus to return. And so he reasoned backwards like this. He said, Jesus will not come until the millennium is over. The millennium will not start until the world is converted. The world will not be converted until Christians unite and the way he suggested for Christians to come to unity would be to restore the uh, early church and to bring back the primitive church in in practice today. And he he believed in in the common sense kind of philosophy of John Locke and others uh, in England and Scotland and so forth, that uh, common sense was was so plentiful and so uh, much alike in everybody that it was proved to be a mistake that... uh, that if, we, if everybody would just take the Bible alone, they could all understand it the same, and they would all be able, if they set aside their creeds and so forth, to to come to the same conclusion, to restore the primitive church. When that happened, Christians would be united. When that happened, the world would believe. When that happened, the millennium would come. When that happened, Jesus would return. So that was his original agenda. I see. Well, we're going to be talking about him here in a few minutes. Um, but first, I want to talk about this, uh, this second Great Awakening that happened still another hundred years after the, uh, the first Great Awakening. Um, and most people would think of the second, so the second Great Awakening as the beginning of this restoration movement. What was this awakening all about? And besides the restoration movement, what other groups came out of it? Well, the second Great Awakening is frequently symbolized by the Cane Ridge revival in Kentucky which went on for a matter of weeks, and uh, preachers from different denominations would hold forth at this camp meeting, and uh, thousands of people, I believe, were present, wandering in and out at times. Uh, this this was a, a time of intense preaching, of intense emotional revival and fervor. It was a, a time of manifestation of what today we would refer to as charismatic gifts, when all kinds of uh, external and visible oral phenomena took place. Uh, from from our standpoint of our conversation here today, the fact that uh, one of those preachers who was present and who was impressed by that was Barton W. Stone is the significant point. And when we come to compare Stone and Campbell later, I'll say more about that. But uh, that, that I think I think the Second Great Awakening was not only indicative of a fervor for biblical Christianity, which was a good thing within itself. But it also had a, a specific overlay of uh, heart religion, as, as, uh, as it was sometimes called, as opposed to head religion only. And, uh, and that became an element for many Christian groups later, uh, specifically in the big picture, the, uh, the Methodist Church, which had come out of the Anglican Church, which had come out of the Catholic Church, uh, so to speak. Uh, the, the Methodist Church in time lost its original fervor and zeal that John Wesley had exemplified, and there came to be, as it frequently happens in all movements, a reformation within that stream. Uh, from that came eventually the holiness movement, which was not 
Pentecostal charismatic, but holiness emphasizing. That one kind of grew cold, and then from that there came later the charismatic or first the Pentecostal, and then in the 1900s the charismatic movement. So you have this constant uh, story repeated throughout church history in all different places and groups of original fervor, gradual cooling, a reformation of zeal, uh, new, new intensification. When that happens, you usually have the old denomination still around. You have usually people who are impatient with the old denomination's lack of change who say, we're going to start a new group and do it right. So you have a new denomination. Then eventually in time, it's not uncommon for that new denomination to grow cool. And people in that group look at the original group and say, we're not that different, we should join. So they merge and create a new denomination. But you still have two old ones left. <laughs> and through that kind of a rabbit, uh, a rabbit reproduction, the denominations have become as plentiful as uh, silver in the time of Solomon. Right. Yeah, well, one thing, though, I, I want to talk just a little bit more about this Second Awakening, because, you know, other groups that I think we have to be honest came out of this group would include uh, things like the Jehovah's Witnesses eventually, the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, the even the Mormons. You know, I think all of these groups have their roots in this movement. And the question I have for you is, do you think that there's any... That there's any difference between the, the nature or, um, you know, uh, the, the meaning behind the second great awakening, a difference between that and the first, because it seems to me that the second produced some pretty, you know, what I would consider to be pretty problematic groups. I think the, uh, I, I'm, I'm not a church historian specifically, and I may be overlooking something very important here, but I don't think with my reading and understanding of things, that the first and second Great Awakenings were particularly different in that regard. Mm. I think that the phenomenon you're describing uh, is really attributable to the fact that the second Great Awakening came at the time of America's history that it did in the early 1800s. Uh, you have uh, Thomas Jefferson, a little later Andrew Jackson. You have what was called Manifest Destiny. You have the, uh, the new uh, Constitution uh, in the latter part of the 1700s. Being adopted, you have the formation of the United States uh, in, in this time period, and it, it was that it was that historical uh, context I think that fired up these different groups that you're speaking of to believe that God was bringing us into a special time uh, of, of human history when, just as the Manifest Destiny political doctrine said that America is here to inhabit this whole continent and to to be a benefit to the world. Eventually, uh, so in a spiritual way, people like Alexander Campbell and others said, believed that they were living in a special time. And the Campbell believed that his generation was going to inaugurate this movement that would result in the millennium. Because he had the same spirit of optimism and fervor, being a post-millennialist, that, uh, that he saw in the political context with, with America. And, and part of what happened with the Campbell's movement that I think was deleterious or, or unhappy uh, was the fact that he came to believe that the New Testament was as perfect a constitution for the work and worship of the church as the constitution of the United States was for the governance of the country. And, and, and in saying that, he, he really was misleading uh, himself and his followers to think that the Bible is something that it isn't intended to be. Hmm. But, but uh, if I may say a word just about these groups you mentioned, sure. what, what, the, what they have in common, Seventh-day Adventist, 
restoration movement, Jehovah's Witness movements, what they have in common is uh, is all of them come out of this context of hopefulness, of optimism, of belief in a new day is at hand, that the, that the new man is just around the corner, that Jesus will surely soon be winding things up. And so they do have that in common. The Mormons have some roots through one of their leaders named Sidney Rigdon, who was one of the original witnesses of Joseph Smith to the Golden Plates, presumably, uh, who for a time was a disciple of pupil of Alexander Campbell and uh, carried some of the Campbell's, uh, Campbell doctrines and ideas, I think, to the Mormon church. And so they have that in common. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their own unique story. Uh, they at times overlap some of the Seventh-day Adventist people, but they should not be confused. Hmm. The Seventh-day Adventist people used to be considered uh, cultic, as the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are usually considered by the mainline evangelicals. But I think that since Walter Martin's last revision of his book, uh, it's, it's appropriate that we should not think of Adventists as cultic. They simply are Christians who have some few doctrines that the rest of us don't think are mistaken. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't call them a cult. I just would say that there's some, some somewhat major disagreements that I would have with them. But yeah, no, I appreciate that. So I, I see what you're saying. It, it has more to do with the timing than the nature of the Great Awakening that, that, that resulted in these, these movements. That makes a lot of sense. But you mentioned... I, I, I think, by the way, that they were correct in thinking that, that the timing was something in God's hand. And whether one is a Calvinist or, or not, uh, we can all appreciate and agree that history is under the hand of our gracious and sovereign God. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, now you mentioned that Barton Stone was somebody that was um, uh, particularly moved by this Cane Ridge revival, and and it's really with Stone and uh, it's it's really with Stone and Campbell that this movement, this restoration movement, is is thought of as having begun. So let's look first at Barton Stone. What's what's his story? What's his background? And what were the distinctives of the movement which bore his name? Stone and Campbell had. Uh they were unlikely bedfellows, you might say, as they ended up in the same movement. They had very different backgrounds, very different personalities, very different agendas in a sense, very different emphases. And, and maybe the best way to say it about Stone is to compare with Campbell as I go along, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, just to begin with, Stone, just to put him in geographical context, is from Kentucky. He's a, he's a farmer. He's a poor man. Uh, he's from... Uh, He's from people who are simple and unsophisticated. He does not have a formal education particularly, and uh, he's very uh, intense uh, in his religion. He's, he's interested in what he called uh, heart unity, or uh, 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 a unity based on people's fervor for Jesus Christ, and he was an enthusiastic supporter of the Cane Ridge Revival. Uh, Alexander Campbell, on the other hand, and almost everything I've just said was different. <laughs> and there's another important difference I'll come to in just a moment. Campbell was uh, a wealthy man. Uh, he and his father, Thomas Campbell, had immigrated to America from Ireland in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, Campbell had lots of land in what's now called West Virginia and uh, in a place called Bethany. And uh, he was he was prosperous. He, he was able, therefore, to spend his time in, in, engaged in his religious pursuits uh, without fear of uh, making a living. Concerned about making a living, he he, he was a man who uh, who was very much an intellectual. He had a brilliant mind. He spoke before a joint session of Congress on at least one occasion. He was the representative of, uh, of Protestant Christianity 
in a number of debates, uh, including one against a Catholic bishop named Purcell in Cincinnati. Uh, and then the, the debate, debates of those days, it was not uncommon for the speaker to get up and speak for six or eight hours straight. Uh, Campbell had a brilliant mind. He had a, an octagon-shaped study in his backyard, which he retired to every morning at very early hour of the morning, spent several hours in prayer and Bible study. He memorized much of Scripture and uh, was an exceedingly brilliant man and was so considered by his contemporaries. So that's something of the differences in their personalities and all of that. Uh, as far as their beliefs and emphases, Campbell probably not surprisingly, given his intellect and his acceptance by the world of intelligent and powerful people, uh, he, he believed that, uh, and also his, his, his post-millennial beliefs, he, he believed that he should be involved in civil government to assist, in a sense. As I said, he spoke to the Joint Session of Congress. He saw the, the world out here as, uh, as something Christians should claim and use for God's glory. Uh, Stone, on the other hand, had an apocalyptic uh, mindset, and he believed as, a, as it would not be surprising for a poor man who lacked uh, access to the power centers in the world. He believed that we should not have anything to do with all of that, that we're members of the kingdom of God, and that we should uh, separate ourselves from the world. And, uh, and simply be citizens of the kingdom of God. Through his influence and through the mediation of a man later named David Lipscomb, who founded a school in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, now called Lipscomb University. Actually, he didn't found it, but he, he, was, he came later. Uh, but through, through his mediating influence, people, uh, even like my father, uh, who was born in 1914 and died in 1972, never voted in his life. Uh, never took part in civil government, believed that a Christian should be a pacifist, and had nothing to do with the government, uh, even though he was very interested in politics on a personal basis. That was the stone uh, emphasis. That was the stone tradition in the South, and, uh, and Campbell and Stone were just quite different in that regard. Yeah. Well, what about their their view of unity? You know, you mentioned that Stone had this belief in heart unity. I think is what you called it. And uh, but but the the guest that I had on last time to talk about this, he said that Campbell's movement, um, his beliefs also had to do with unity, but a unity on a different basis. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, uh, Campbell. Campbell's this is this is my words, not Campbell's words. Sure. But Campbell believed that what was lacking in the Reformation. He, he, this often is unnoticed and unsaid and unappreciated, but he believed the Reformers did their work properly. They were God's men. They were Christians, and uh, and he didn't say much about what they talked about because that had already been said. So he went on, he thought, to, to, to make new ground and uh, go farther than they had gone. To him, that meant re, re, restructuring the existing church to be uh, in the pattern of the primitive church that he saw in the New Testament. So his, his idea of unity had to do more with unity of, 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 of details, unity of external particulars, unity in agreement, unity in understanding. But he was not so concerned with theoretical doctrine as he was with uh, actual practice. And today, to use the modern words, he was more, more into orthopraxis than he was orthodoxy, although he certainly was orthodox in the big sense of the word. I see. Okay.
Now, from what I understand, these two groups, although they started out as separate movements, the people that followed Stone and the people that followed Campbell, um, but despite some major differences, they later united, and that's why we call it the Stone-Campbell movement sometimes. What led to the merging of these two movements, and how did this now united group continue to develop in those early years? Well, what happened, uh, actually, as I said, Stone was lived with you more in the deeper south. Campbell's work was more uh, first. In, in uh, Virginia and Indiana and all that, although Campbell made speaking trips all over the settled part of the United States at that time, including more than one through Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, he went to uh, the continent, England and so forth, and uh, as well at different times. But, but uh, Stone, Stone had an earlier start than Campbell in the South, and so when the two first began to meet up with each other, it was usually through people who had been affected by one or the other, and they would encounter other people who are preaching a restoration of the New Testament church. And these people would say, in effect, hey, that's something I'm already doing. Where did you learn about this? And they may say, well, from Alexander Campbell. And, uh, and they say, well, I've learned it from Barton Stone. <laughs> and so, as it turns out, in the Deep South, at least, which is where I'm from, uh, Stone had, had an earlier and bigger start than Campbell did. However, uh, Campbell being the intellectual, and the more hard-driven and uh, all of that, uh, other reasons we could bring up, uh, seemed to grow quicker and prevail. And Stone uh, and Campbell eventually decided that their differences, which included the difference in being a post-millennialist for Campbell and a pre-millennialist for Calvin, included the difference between uh, Campbell at first, at least coming out of a, a Reformed or Calvinistic church, uh, and, and Stone, uh, I believe, not being Calvinistic. I could be mistaken about that. But they, they, had, they had some important differences, but they decided that their differences were not as important as their goals that they had in common, and so they just kind of tossed their lot in together. Uh, when, that, when that happened, this is my subjective perception uh, as a person who's only read about it and hasn't been there, although my <laughs> children may think I was there. <laughs> uh, uh, but it, it seems to me that after that happened, Alexander Campbell was—it was kind of like a union between an elephant and a turtle, <laughs> and uh, and the turtle gets stepped on by the elephant. Alexander Campbell's uh, thoughts and, and ideas and emphases just overpowered Stone's so much so that although the Stone influence lasted in certain quarters of the apocalyptic influence and the otherworldly influence and the even premillennial influence. Uh, lasted up until uh, sometime in the 20th century in certain quarters. Uh, for the most part, that was in a camel's way of approaching things, overpowered stones, and, and the intellectual side of it overpowered the heart side of it, and the uh, what I call doctrinal side, meaning theoretical doctrine, uh, overpowered the, uh, the revival of the charismatic side of it. Hmm. Well, so if... if if the elephant was able to squish the turtle, so to speak, uh, and so their differences sort of got, you know, one, one of theirs, one of their views sort of trumped the others. Why was it that there was this dis this disagreement that began to reach a boiling point by the turn of the 20th century? Because it seems to me that although these two groups became one, they divided again at that point. Why was that? Well, the, the division that came later was not really so probably definable in terms of these two groups. Well, there were other things that happened. The first big division happened 
Well, let me put it this way. From, from the Camp Stone Campbell uh, movement beginnings, there came to be three major uh, groups in American religion, and there are subgroups in each of these. But the three major groups from, uh, from left to right, uh, as usually thought of, are the, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, uh, to the left, the, the, uh, it's a highly organized denomination. He was a member of COCU, ecumenical movement in this day. And, uh, and, and while there are evangelical people and, and gospel preaching churches and preachers and all that and believers in many disciples of Christ Christian churches, there are also in some of them uh, people who are none of the above. Uh, in the middle are the, uh, what they call themselves usually the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ. And these are, are folk who are almost the same as Churches of Christ, except for a couple of things I mentioned in a moment. And then to the right, as it usually was thought of, although today labels are all confused and confusing and are not hardly reliable for anything anymore <laughs> uh, because everybody's so independent. Uh, but it used to be, to the far right, you had the Churches of Christ, who were usually identified as being the, the group who did not use instrumental music in their worship. Uh so those are the three big groups. The, the, the first division came between the uh, the people who wanted to support cooperative works, particularly missionary societies, and those who thought that that was inappropriate from scriptural teaching. And that, that was a division that came uh, recognized publicly uh, in about 1904, thereabouts, uh, three or four, uh, when the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ were identified in somebody's uh, church atlas or whatever, uh, separate, I think in the U.S. Census, actually, as separate from the Churches of Christ non-instrumental. The, the instrumental question also was affected by lots of things besides uh, Bible verses. Uh, it was affected by demographic differences, geographical differences, and so forth. So, Because if you have poor people in a you know, to a church on the wrong side of the tracks in the deep south, uh, it's far less likely they're going to be interested in purchasing a big pipe organ <laughs> than it is for a church in Cincinnati, Ohio, with a thousand members and, uh, and uh, you know, leaders in society with lots of money. So all, all these things played a part in these things, but they usually were disguised as doctrinal differences and were treated as matters of faith, especially by the objectors, and, uh, and that's the way it fell out. That was the first first big division, and later in the mid twentieth uh, century, the Disciples of Christ, which was the left wing of that movement, uh, became formally organized as an official denomination. Uh, the other two groups, as I said, do not have any formal denominational organization at all. Okay. Now, so that kind of catches us up, I think, and we're going to begin to talk about the right side of those, uh, the, you know, the rightmost of those three churches, I think, the Churches of Christ. But before we get to that, what do you think, given everything that we've talked about, what, what would you call the, the sort of good, the bad, and the ugly about this movement? And what I mean by that is what do you admire, appreciate, and what goals do you per- personally share? And in contrast, do you think that there might be some things that are regrettable where you think maybe they went wrong? Sure. Uh, that would be true of any group we could name. And it would be true of any human being individually, yeah. uh, including looking in the mirror and starting with oneself, which is probably what the New Testament advises us to do. Sure. Uh, 
But as far as, uh, as, far as what went right and what went wrong, I think the general emphasis of, uh, of back to the Bible, we certainly have to say is a good thing. Uh, the, the, the Reformation was built on that. Uh, not only that, the Word of God throughout that encourages that very approach that we, we should be always listening to God rather than men and uh, paying attention to what He has to say. I think the, uh, the, the one of the great uh, good things about the uh, Church of Christ and the Restoration Movement was its emphasis on the oneness of God's people. I didn't say anything about this a while ago, but uh, one of the, there are two founding documents, you might say, uh, just as a Constitution and Declaration of Address, or uh, I hold a cherished position in our political history, but in the Restoration Movement there are two documents that stand out in almost that same place of prominence. The first was written by Thomas Campbell, and it was called A Declaration and Address, and it was really his his great announcement to the Christian world at large of, of the movement he was hoping to launch and his calling on them to be a part of it and participate. He said things in that like this, and this is not a direct quote, but it's almost a direct quote. He said things similar to this, that uh, whereas the Church of Christ, meaning the, the body of Christ, the universal church is essentially constitutionally one. Uh, in other words, Christ's body is, is one. That's a given. We don't have to create unity. It is one already. And he went on to say, in effect, that uh, everybody who trusted in Jesus and sought to follow him and be obedient to him as best they understood him was a Christian, a child of God. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they, their fellowship with each other had become impeded and their unity had become disrupted by the introduction and misuse, of uh, emphasis on misuse, of human creeds and such like, and, uh, and these denominational separations. And he was calling on everyone to set all of that aside and go back to the Bible and simply be Christians only and to acknowledge one another as Christians and work together for the conversion of the world. So I, I, think, I think it was admirable. Uh, it may have been naive, but it was admirable. Hmm. Uh, uh, on this. There are other specific details I will talk about that I think are good, and you're going to come to some of those a little later. Yeah. But uh, but uh, on, on the negative side, uh, it's hard to do anything right without sometimes spoiling it by our human uh, fallen nature. And, and what happened here is some of Campbell's followers, even in the first generation, began to forget. Uh, what Thomas Campbell had said about the oneness of God's people and begin to think of themselves rather than uh, leading the way by example and being Christians only to think of themselves as the only Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a, a not, not a, I mean, it makes a lot of difference if you turn those words around. So one of the mottos in the early Restoration Movement preaching was this, they, they like to say we are Christians only, but not the only Christians. Mm. Or we're not, they say it the other way, we're not the only Christians, but seek to be Christians only. And they would frequently say no creed but Christ, uh, which I think is, is not a bad place to start. Uh, if, if, if creeds somehow become necessary, then we should, we should hear Alexander Campbell's warning when he said it's not the use, but the abuse of creeds that we oppose. When people use those creeds to of separate between Christians and base fellowship on fine points of human doctrine as opposed to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you one quick example of that from sure. their own experience. Thomas Campbell had come to America. I had to stop and breathe and take a sip of water. That's okay. 
Thomas Campbell came to America, uh, and Alexander as well, as uh, previously members of a Presbyterian Church in Scotland and Ireland, but uh, Ireland particularly, but uh, but they, they belonged to a particular wing of the Presbyterians, uh, which was known as Seceder, Old Light, Anti-Burger, the Presbyterians. And each one of those words reflected a division within the Presbyterian Church. One of, one of the uh, one of the key events that kicked off that spurred Thomas Campbell to do what he did in this movement was the fact that uh, his his church practiced close communion, and uh, in order to receive communion on the Lord's Day, a person had to have a token, a little metal piece of well, like a coin that the pastor gave him or elder gave him, and uh, they couldn't take communion unless you had a token. And you couldn't get a token unless you measured up to their creeds and all that. Hmm. Well, that, that put Thomas Campbell in the position of withholding the Lord's Supper from people who he believed were good Christian people, but he just didn't happen to agree with every detail of this uh, multiplied, divided, uh, multiply divided denomination. And when he objected to that and refused to go by that, he was disciplined for it, and, and that caused him to eventually believe that uh, place of his origin and uh, moving to something else. Interesting. Yeah, and, and I, it's funny you mentioned that because it almost sounds like this this aim, which I would find very admirable on the part of on the part of Campbell, is actually the opposite of what a lot of people that come out of this movement today seem to uh, live by. Does that sound? I mean, do you think that's fair? I think it's fair to say that that happened, and I think it's fair to say that that's not a unique event in Christian history. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, now, there's a book that you've got available for free online. It's called The Restoration Movement Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in it, you seem to suggest that there are many who glamorize the history of this movement. Um, what sort of picture do you think that many people in at least certain churches of Christ have in mind when they think about this movement? And what sort of what you call important, if troublesome, questions, as you put it, arise from such a presentation? Well, the, the, image, the image is uh, an idealized uh, story for sure. In the idealized version, the thought is, and this is found in other groups as well, uh, groups ranging from the Mormons who have a book, little book that they give out door to door, which talks about the true church, its origin, its falling away, and its restoration. They even use Campbell's language. And, and you can think this was written by someone in the Church of Christ in the beginning part of it. <laughs> uh, other groups included in this same idea include certain Church of God denominations, which uh, go back to uh, to Isaiah chapter 2, that uh, all nations will come and hear the word of the Lord in the tops of the mountains. And they say, we started in, uh, in Appalachia on a certain mountain near the Smoky Mountains, and we're the group that is talking about. <laughs> and so people have this way of, of rewriting history. But in the Glamorized story, the, the picture is that in the beginning, God established a perfect church on earth. Everything was pristine and pure and wonderful. Uh, there were no problems or errors or divisions. And uh, then that church fell away into apostasy, resulting in the Catholic Church. The Reformation came and tried to straighten things out, but didn't go nearly far enough. And now, thank God, uh, our movement is here to set it straight and finish the job. Well, you know, said with humility, uh, there's an element of truth in all that, and there's a place for having that sort of a, of a zeal, I think, uh, properly managed. But uh, unfortunately, it became sometimes for some people 
was not only a glamorized meta uh, narrative that wasn't really true, but it even became an excuse and a cover up uh, for avoiding responsible behavior in other areas that needed attention. So that, that's, uh, that's something of the idealized story. The, uh, the problems it raises, of course, some of them are evident just in telling that part of the story. Uh, one, one has to say that, uh, that this, this view has a possibility of saying that there were no true Christians for 19, 1,800 years between the apostasy and, and the Campbell movement. I really don't think uh, anybody that I ever knew said that, but that would be something someone might hint at or come up and say something like. Uh, uh, we have to ask questions like how, how does Jesus promise that the church, uh, when the gates of hell will not prevail against the church in Matthew 16, and this sounds like the church lost out for a while at least. <laughs> uh, the, the picture of a united church described in this scenario just is not true in the New Testament. You have uh, Christians, the disciples first called Christians in Antioch, in Corinth is called the Church of God. Romans 16 speaks of churches or assemblies of Christ. You've got the Hebrews, the church of the firstborn ones whose names are written in heaven. And the church did not really have a name in the New Testament. They didn't do things exactly the same everywhere in the New Testament. You've got uh, charismatic worship at Corinth, apparently not so at Ephesus in the same way at least. You've got in Ephesus a structured kind of governance so with elders and so on. The other churches in the New Testament don't mention elders at all and have other ones for their leaders. And so it's, it's, it's kind of an over, it's just smoothed over too nicely. It's like a picture that, that an artist has uh, taken a, a, a gritty picture that shows the smoke and the dirtiness and all that that's in the scene and, uh, and made a, a Thomas Kincaid picture out of it, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which I love, and I've got several on the wall in the room I'm in right now. But, uh, but that's not reality. Right. Well, I've got one more question for you before we shift gears, because you, you mentioned these three branches that came out of the movement, at, at the right most of which is the Churches of Christ, but it seems to me as though even that group has kind of begun to split, because the anonymous guest that I had on, um, in our second half of our interview, he, he critiqued one specific kind of Church of Christ, one particular branch, but the Churches of Christ that you're more associated with also emerged from this movement. So can you help us understand how, after this once unified movement began to divide into these three groups, how your branch of those three further branched into these two different kinds of Churches of Christ that it seems there are today? Well, actually, people who've looked into this say sometimes there's as many as 15, and other people say as many as 25 different groups, which uh, puts this movement right up there with the Baptists and the Presbyterians for <laughs> devising this. <laughs> but... Uh, but, but in our case, I think it grew out of this fact that uh, the zeal for restoration of the New Testament order uh, began to be expressed in terms of a pattern. What is the pattern for the church? And that, that was considered to be what one would learn by an inductive uh, review of the New Testament data. And it was thought that people with common sense would all come to the same conclusion. Here's the way it was then. This is the way it should be now. So that what was descriptive also became what should be proscriptive or prescriptive. Mm. And uh, that principle, if, if one adopts that principle, then uh, it puts a person in a position of every new issue or idea that comes up or controversy 
uh, becomes almost a salvation issue with a fellowship issue right off the top. And so with the people with that approach who see that as a, as a means of their unity or as a means of their salvation, even worse, uh, for them, everything that comes down the road has to be, you have to be right or wrong to be lost. And, uh, right. and, and you can't have fellowship with anybody who's different. It's, just, it's, uh, it's the old fundamentalist attitude that separatism combined with a, a legalistic attitude that most denominations have fallen into at one time or another. Uh, but, but so uh, i to try to get back to part of your question. You say the differences in the Church of the Christ. That's kind of the way the differences, that's the spring from which the differences flow. The differences have included lots of different things. Uh, the, the, the premillennial issue that I mentioned at one point became uh, a major point of the controversy, particularly under the leadership of one man who was a crusader on the subject. And, uh, and, and there is now the mainstream Church of Christ who are generally not premillennial. And, uh, and there's a small group of churches in the Senate in Louisville, Kentucky, and around New Orleans, Louisiana, that are premillennial that take back to the time when those things were not yet determined by the mainstream. Uh, I spoke at the Louisville Historic the Meeting House of these brothers and sisters a couple of years ago at the annual event they had. They're dear people. And I love them, and they're good Christians, but they're, they're not considered mainline Church of Christ. Uh, there are other issues that came up involving cooperation of churches in certain kinds of works, mission works, and other things. Uh, a lot of issues that I can name that will not make a lick of sense to anybody outside the movement, <laughs> uh, but that have been causes of division, even such things as whether you should use one cup in the Lord's Supper or multiple cups. Uh, literally, uh, because the Bible says the cup we drink is, we all drink in the same cup or one cup, meaning the contents, uh, but some are taking that to mean the container, and so that became an issue. There's lots and lots of differences like that. But the, I, I would say today, the main, main body of churches of Christ, uh, is, is represented by people that one would encounter at, uh, Evelyn Christian University in Texas, uh, for example, or Pepperdine University in California, or Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. These are these are major institutions that are supported by members of Churches of Christ, and uh, and they are they're both leaders and representatives of what's out there in the ranks. Uh, there are still a number of people in the Churches of Christ who see these three schools I just named as, as carrying the church into apostasy who consider those people to be left-wing liberals, which is what they would call me. <laughs> and uh, and they say that uh, we're all headed down the primrose path to hell and it's, uh, instead of being a march toward Jesus. But I, I see what's happening as, uh, for the most part, in the things I'm talking about, at least uh, a good sign of moving toward Christ and an emphasis on the gospel and, uh, and trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit. Good. Okay. All right, well, that was part one of our interview focusing on the restoration movement. And in the second half, we'll be moving into the Churches of Christ specifically. So uh, take a break, relax, and come back and join me for the next episode. Until then. (laughs) 